Welcome to the Property Developers and Investors podcast, where we explore the detail of what it really takes to achieve great success in the business of property developments and investments. Now let's get into this week's episode. And a very warm welcome to the the planning podcast. Uh, Nigel Green here from the Echo Academy, and I have with me today my podcast partner, Mr. David Kemp from DRK Planning. How are you doing, David? Hi, Nigel. Morning, everyone. Hi. Morning. And happy Easter, by the way, as well. Easter, yes. Yes, yes. Absolutely. We we all had a few days off as well, which was nice. The sun was out. I think the uh, the rain was equally there as well from time to time, wasn't it? But anyway, we all had yeah. a good time. Just so. keep us on our toes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Remind us it's a bank holiday. <laughs> that and the road works. That's yeah. right. Yes, yes. <laughs> Don't they always come out on the bank holidays? They always do. Yes. <laughs> they never disappoint. Yeah. No, very much so. This is quite a special one, David, isn't it? This is uh, episode five of our, our five-part series. So Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The finale, which is... Uh, which... Where does the time go? Where's the, where does the time go? No idea. No idea. <laughs> you know, I really hope everybody that's um, joined us in this journey and uh, listening to all the all the debates and the, the great content that's being provided here is really enjoying uh, what's happening. And, uh, you know, who knows, we, we might do something else in the future. But, yeah, this is episode five. And I think, you know, a lot of people talk about the positives, but which is great learning and great education. But I think equally it's really important to understand uh, the not so positives as well, because there's equally great, great learning, isn't there, David? Mm, 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 mm. So, so the particular title of episode five, our, our finale, is planning pitfalls and things to watch out for, which I think is really, really a good heading. And uh, let's let's dive straight into it. So, I mean, j- just some thoughts, uh, really. You know that uh, we we could talk about. I mean, you know, it's. I suppose one of the big things is it's, it's just kind of the failure to check the planning permission requirements, isn't it? You know, and yeah. getting that wrong could be a, a bit of a schoolboy error. Have you had any experience with that? Um, there's been um, a few times when we've had applications delayed because we needed uh, another report to go in or um, and the worst, actually, the worst situation has been where We've uh, a client has come to us because their application has been delayed through the process. It's taken some twelve to eighteen months to go through the planning process. Been horrendously delayed, and whilst that's happened, the London plan got ad- adopted, which meant that that then triggered the need for them to generate a whole load of other reports and brought a whole load of other policies into play as well. So it's almost like having to go back to square one again. So it just goes to show that sometimes these things can happen not just at the start, but because the application goes on for so long that a new layer of policy comes in Absolutely. or something changes in policy and all of a sudden, you know, the um, the documents that you put in have to be different. If you know that you're going to be in a situation where the validation Requirements. So basically, what happens is the council will look at what's called a validation list, so a local validation list, and that'll be on their website. It'll be usually your planning consultant who will go through that and advise you as to what documents have got to go in, and it'll be different for different applications depending upon what the issues are engaged, depending upon where it is, whether it's a listed building, if it's in a conservation area, the size of the development, whether or not it needs 
an energy statement, uh, might need daylight and sunlight reports that might need affordable housing viability assessment, so on and so forth. Or even with submitted um, permitted development applications, they require some evidence of use, etc. So if you're in a situation where you're submitting an application, but you know that certain requirements for certain documents are just not relevant, um, or the the other one is where you feel you can deal with some of the issues within another report. So, for instance, it's quite common for planning statements to deal with conservation. So you don't necessarily need a separate conservation statement. You don't need to, to instruct a whole new conservation report. You get your planning consultant sometimes to write up the conservation arguments within the planning statement. So you've got to make it clear to your um uh, to your planning officers when the application goes in that this report includes these sections which deal with particular issues. So you know, they can see as they go through it and they can check, they can tick it off. Mm. But if you're going to miss out particular documents or particular issues altogether and you've got a good reason for doing so, you have to fill out a particular kind of notice. It's called an Article 12 notice. Uh, and then what you do is you fill that out and you submit it with your application so that the validation or technical officers see that and they go, hmm, it's not, we're going through the documents and the document that we expect to see in this validation list for this application is not there. That's potentially a cross. Oh, hold on a second. There's an Article 12 notice here. Mm. Mm. Oh, yes, that document's referred to here, and they've explained why they've not put it in, and they've got a good reason for doing so. Okay, well, that will be all right. So that's just generally speaking that, you know, it can happen, yeah. but there are ways in which you can manage it in advance. Yeah, yeah. I, I can imagine in in your, um, you know, history in, in terms of your planning consultancy and supporting clients in achieving what they want to achieve. I'm, I'm sure from time to time you've you've picked up, um, you know, a client that's having a few problems. Maybe they've, you know, they're sailing, they've sailed the journey on their own. Yeah. And yeah. it's gone a little bit wrong. And yeah. and maybe you've found, you know, as part of the, the application and then kind of rowing their, their own boat that they've, possibly ignored local planning policies and these sorts of things. And <laughs> yeah. just, was just it Mike, Mike Tyson said, is it that everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face? Absolutely. <laughs> That's <laughs> one of my favourite sayings. <laughs> I was just wondering, yeah, the question for me would be, um, in those situations, um, how did it go? How did it work out for you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, so I think I think you know, do not ignore local policies, um, local planning policies, right. and and very specifically, and uh, you know what is required, and if there is any deviation, be very clear, and as you say, put, put yeah. the notices in, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, navigate your way through that. Um, I think um, the environment is is coming up more and more on the environmental impact um, mm. that any planning application is having on its surroundings. Um, yeah. 
you know, I, I, what, what's your experience at the moment, you know, at this tick of the clock on that particular subject matter? Uh, is it quite a tough one to navigate or are you just... Um, I haven't... I mean, you see it coming through in national planning policy, for instance, and that then takes time to filter down through to thinking at local level because there's always a time lag with local policies being um, changed or revised or adapted to take that into account. But I think that what happens is that as that changes, uh, then we slowly pick up on those signals through officers or through the applications. Uh, now, you try to anticipate that a little bit where you can think about where there might be environmental arguments in favour of your scheme. They don't always work. So, for instance, Greenbelt policies and presumptions are really quite strong. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll you'll find sometimes you know you you get as a consultant you get approached to look at developments in the green belt and the client is looking at building eco homes, um, which is great uh, and that can be a mitigating factor in terms of the environmental impact, um, but it doesn't overcome the strong presumption against residential per se unless you have a strong case for that itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do see more and more. More uh, more often, councils looking for environmental reports, energy statements. Um, they're trying to see more information about carbon reduction, etc. Um, and it depends on which council you're looking at as well, because every council is different. They all have their different objectives and their different um, uh, key factors that uh, that are important to them locally. Some of them are based on the coast and tourism. And the local economy in that respect is very important to them. Yeah. Um, others might be based um, in an area which is deprived and they want to regenerate and they want to see commercial and they don't want to lose it to residential, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, others where um, there's a potential juxtaposition between um, settlements and the area around it, which is quite tight, is in terms of green belts. It's all very, very constrained. Um, but you're caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. You're either going to go for development in areas which end up being conservation areas, or you're going to have to go outside to green belt areas. So, you know, you've got all these sorts of pushes and pulls to it. So, you know, it's. I think the key takeaway here is if you are looking at a particular council area, mm. I think. It's easy to generalise and say environmental arguments will play well with whichever council you're looking at. They will be relevant whichever council you're looking at, but they will have a different weight depending upon what the council is, what its objectives are, and where in the local authority area that you are looking to develop. You can't take a one-size-fits-all approach to these issues. It requires... Research, understanding, and engagement. Engagement with stakeholders. There's a lot more of that that has to happen now these days in advance, even on smaller applications. And I don't think you should ever be afraid of it because you should have the confidence um, in your proposals. A lot of people say, oh, I don't want to get involved with busy bodies and NIMBYs Mm -hmm. and and the local councillors. But it can smooth the path quite a lot with applications. Definitely. Definitely. And, you know, environmental impact and, you know, creating or proposing a development that 
basically is likely to harm the environment. I mean, yeah. the, the things that we we could put in that list, I, I suppose, would be things like noise pollution, air pollution, yeah. damage to wildlife habitats. These these sorts of elements which need to be considered. And you know, where where would anybody get that information from? Is that specific? Is that like another report you would get to to accompany your your application? Well, the information that leads that feeds into the application mm-hmm. to do um, yes, I mean you'd often have to. What, ha- you, what usually happens is you start off at the very very high level, consider asking yourself what's relevant to this site. So the first thing you often look at, we often look at, is the proposals map, so local plan proposals map, and that will give you some particular local designations because it might there it might be a designated as a nature conservation corridor or, or something similar to that. So there might be obvious things like that as well. Um, but you also, it's through experience as planning consultants, we also tend to read in what other issues that might be relevant as well. And it's just something that comes up through experience. So for instance, if you are in a, a coastal area um, or you're down in the southeast area around the Thames Valley, some parts of Thames Valley, we know that there might be contributions for SANG and SAM. So we're sort of looking for those supplementary planning documents to see, well, what are the zone, what's called zones of influence? So am I within, say, five kilometers of a an area or seven kilometers of an area where there's protected heathland or upland? Um, so in a sense, you're sort of looking for problems. I know it sounds perverse. But um, you've got your planning officer hat on. You're thinking, what kind of development is this? What kind of area of the country am I in? Um, what also is the environment around us like? Because am I close to um, rivers, seas? Uh, could there be flood risk? Um, am I close to um, uh, industrial areas and employment zones? So there could be possible of contamin- possibility of contamination. Uh, am I close to trees? Um, are there possible TPOs on the site and things like that as well? And all these things also can affect your developable area on the site as well. So these are things that you really should be looking for way before you submit a planning application. Yeah. These are things that you should be looking for right from the outset when you start putting your scheme together because you want to know this is my parcel of land. What's my developable area and how much can I push that developable area? So what are the constraints as well as the opportunities, but what are the constraints? So you should already know that information before you even go in for a, a full planning application on these yes. sorts of things. It's kind of building the foundations of the application, isn't it? To- you take a layered approach. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You sort of layer it up one, one at a time because mm-hmm. there's a lot of moving parts and you start sort of opening your mind up to all the possible things it just you'll go bonkers you really will this is just to try and consider everything all at one time you deal with the big hitting um you know the the big headline matters first and then you work your way down through a list a known list you know and that that's that's how you do it really Absolutely. yeah no very good and earlier on you you touched on this point and i think another quite big pitfall that um is or has been out there is around, you know, engaging the local community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
speaking to, connecting with, uh, communicating with, you know, local residents, businesses. Yeah. Who, yeah. Who can actually have quite an impact on on the planning permission being granted or not? Um, yeah. Influence for for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, and if you if you could just spend that time and understand the wants, the wishes, the needs, and try and address them through the application, I think it it goes some way to just helping the overall application and its certainty. You know, going forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do, yeah. Do, do you have any good examples of? Um, local community engagement yeah i would th- i think when when you talk to developers particularly developers who are relatively inexperienced they will start off this process of you know getting involved with the community with a great deal of terror and trepidation um and it's understandable because you know you can't control people's whims and their likes and you know you you do get some real oddballs out in the community and you'll get some very very surprising responses and also people can be quite disingenuous. I mean, I've had people come along to um, public exhibitions and we've laid out all the panels and the presentations and we've walked and talked them through the scheme and they go, oh, yeah, that's very nice. That looks lovely and that would be great and that's, that would be wonderful for the community. And the buggers go away and they write up objection letters and they say, we don't want this. So they, you can get all of that. Mm. Um, but I think that... You know, people need to set aside their feeling that it's going to slow down the application, the progress of the application. If I don't, if I if I do it, I need to. Um, I will gain more time in my application if I go in quickly, uh, and I think that that's a common mistake. Because if anything, what happens is, first of all, you get people wound up because they haven't been consulted. They feel disenfranchised by. A developer just going in and dictating to them, this is what we are going to give your community. When the community might think, actually, that's not what we want. Or actually, they might want it, but they just wanted to be consulted. Absolutely. Also, you get people who just don't understand plans. You and I read plans like they're our second language. But Joe Public out there doesn't know their section from their floor plan. No. And they can't read these things. And sometimes even with, particularly with next door neighbors, you've got to sit down with them and you've actually got to walk them through the plans. You've got to put in the time. You've got to put in the effort. You've got to put in the hard yards. It's worth it. Absolutely. The third thing is that um, when you get the, when you're showing that you're, you're out there, you're putting the stakeholder in involvement first and you're being genuine about it. That plays very well with committee members. Mm. They like that, that kind of touchy feely way about it. Mm. Um, the best one that we did is, um, it was a site actually that was being uh, sold by who was it? It was Suffolk County Council. They're the education and social services provider for the county uh, because it's not like London or Manchester or Birmingham. They're not what's called a unitary authority. So the, the functions, the civic functions are split between planning and then highways, education, fire, that's all dealt with by the the county level, whereas the planning functions are dealt with at the district level. So the district council was West Suffolk District Council. So this was a development of Nilden Hall, which is in the middle of um, uh, Suffolk, and they've got a 
We've got a high parish council. Don't ask me what a high parish council is, but it's a bit like a parish council, it's a town council. And what we did was, well, first we did, a, it was a development to change the use of an old care home, which couldn't, it was too expensive and it was um, unviable to upgrade its modern standards. So the county was selling it and it's currently being developed for 30 homes. I think about two thirds of them are being sold. In fact, I'm going to go in the next couple of weeks and see the developers who are all friends and contacts of mine. And we're going to have a look around and see and, and, and just learn a few things, see, see what's happened and see if I can spot the differences between what we've got approval for and what they've actually built. <laughs> I, I know the which often which often happens. Yeah, but I, I know it. I know what they built is not what I got approval for, mm. but I know that their project manager has been handling retrospective applications to regularize things because there have been problems they've come across during the build, which um, it, it never moves in straight lines, as you know. And sometimes you have to go back and you have to make changes to plans. Yeah, absolutely. so. We yeah. went in with a, a presentation to the parish council first. Um, and all this was in consultation with the county as well, because you have to bear in mind we had to manage the relationship with the county council officers as well as the district council. So um, actually, did we do the pre-app first? It was a few years back. I think I think we actually we did a pre-app first because the pre-app, doesn't get advertised, doesn't go to anybody else. We just wanted to sound out what the planning determining authority would think of it first. And then we'd go on to the parish council, because if we had a generally positive pre-app with the, with the planning authority, we could go in front of the parish council and say, we'd like your support to do X, Y, and Z, but um, we've spoken to the borough council already. So that's that's sort of what we did. And then we did a presentation to the public. We did a daytime presentation and we did an evening presentation. And the, it was interesting, the people who came along, um, and a lot of them said, we, we're pleased you did this because if you hadn't have done this, we probably would have objected because we thought you were delivering something else. Yeah. yeah. And you usually have... Um, we had, I think, we had four presentation panels. So the first presentation panel was um, who we are and the team, and our, so it's, you know, pushing out all the experience there, but also the local connection, um, making sure that you don't get branded with the accusation you're just a, a nameless, faceless developer. You know, you're fronting up in front of the local community. My clients were fronting up in front of the local community. So we are. What the site is, um, what we're looking to do, um, and why we're looking to do it. So the negatives about the current building, but also um, then what we're proposing um, and the positives to that. And then the last board was, uh, timelines, next stage, next steps, process. And then we have feedback forms where we could actually get people to write out their name, their email address, phone number, if they were comfortable. Obviously, it's all DPA um, and comments because then I have to take these comments 
and I have to set this out in a statement of community involvement in in the application. So I've spent a fair bit of time talking about the process here, uh, and it's important to understand it is a lengthy process. It took us about, probably added another few months to the application. But this is an application for 30 new homes. We managed to um, persuade the council to um, not impose affordable housing viability on us. Um, uh, so we, so there was no affordable housing contribution because basically we were using the existing um, uh, existing footprint, the existing floor area, and we were redeveloping that. So um it's it um it was um um what's the phrase the affordable it'll come to me um vbc i have shortened it to vbc um viability uh, it'll come to me anyway oh, the viability but, assessment no it wasn't a viability assessment um it's basically where you take the existing floor area and you discount it against the proposed floor area oh the net gain yeah, it's the net gain. Yeah, there's, there's a particular term for it, and I've just had a memory blank about what it is in terms of affordable housing. But basically, we got it. We there was no affordable housing contribution, and this was so. This application for thirty units is a major development proposal. It would normally take thirteen weeks to go through. In any event, it did take a little bit longer because of Section One Hundred Six drafting and negotiation, but it went through under delegated powers. Oh, it right. didn't go through to committee. Oh, very good. That's really good. Really, really good. So because there was no objections from councillors, there was hardly any objections. I think there was one objection from somebody who lived locally. Yeah. Um, but you, you can, you've got to expect that. Yeah. So yeah, sorry for a bit of a sort of a long-winded description no. explanation about it. But I think it's really important that people really get an understanding of the process you've got to go through, who you end up talking to, but the benefit at the end is you've got a scheme that's supported locally. Yeah. Um, it goes through quicker. You've got more certainty in the process as well. It gets delivered quicker. Yeah. And also because you've made you haven't made the those enemies going into the grant, then when you get into the bill, you've got fewer people breathing down your necks as well. So it's yeah. easier to manage the project going forward as well. Absolutely. And, you know, as you say, from an officer's perspective, they they really want to, you know, they, they want to see these applications going through. I mean, it's yeah. and they're trying to find a way to help any applicant to enable this to go through. And if they can tick a box to say there has been prior community engagement, it's been effective, it's been, you know, they've, they've sought feedback, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah. then they can see the results of that, which is... Yeah. Not so many objections. I mean, it's it's kind of the perfect storm for them, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now they they get to a situation if if you and this is why it's on the pitfall list. If you don't mm. do it, and you've got you know x amount of hundred objections, it's very difficult for the officers to go. Right. Oh, we'll we'll just approve it because it would end yeah. up probably going to committee and away. They can building credit. That's what it was. Building credit. Vacant building credit. Yes, there you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> basically, it was it was a vacant building. And we were able to say uh, the whole idea about vacant building credit is that you should be able to use it for redeveloping brownfield land. Um, it's a refurbishment or it's re it's reusing um, old stock. And yeah. therefore, 
um, we should get credit for that. Yeah. Um, and that's the whole idea about the policy yeah. in very, very broad terms. And the council accepted that. Fantastic. <clears throat> I've seen a couple of um, different versions of the engagement. I mean, we, we've done a, a number of versions of that where we've um, we've created a uh, development proposal and we've we've letter dropped you know into the local community and area and uh, advertised locally yeah we did that as well we did a letter drop it's yeah. difficult to understand to, to get an idea about what the radius should be yes what we did was we um set out our consultation strategy and then we wrote to the I can't remember if we wrote to the county council, but we certainly wrote to our case officer mm. and said, this is what we're proposing to do. Do you have any objections? Do you think that we should be looking at a wider area than this? Yep. Um, so once you've agreed the rules of the game with them, then there's less likelihood that somebody can say it wasn't a wide enough consultation or whatever. Absolutely. It's, it's collaborating, isn't it? As I say, we're... You know, the officers are not there to find a way to reject the application. They're there to support, but we've all got to do our bit. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't always feel like that sometimes, but yes, they, yeah. if they are looking for things yeah, to reject. Absolutely. But yes, you're absolutely, I take your point. You're absolutely right. You know, you can make things, you can make life a lot easier for yourself by going into the process um, genuinely um, and authentically uh, keen to deliver a project that's supported by the local community that benefits the local community and, and if that's what your intention is if if you are going to deliver something that is um that is needed by that local area and you're genuine you you're actually going to you actually are delivering something that's in need and it's it's in demand um because you've not just looked at the values you're not just spoken to the agents but you've also spoken to people on the ground as well then it makes your life a lot easier at the end of the day absolutely absolutely very much so and you know i think i think that's a really good discussion around you know one of the key pitfalls that local engagement i think mm. is a key one but but equally another one um you know have you have you found probably not associated with the initial application but kind of picking up the pieces from clients that are struggling and, and going in to help them that maybe they they haven't put enough detail into the initial application have you have you seen I'm that i sure they have been yeah um but i mean even with the most genuine and authentic consultation well we did um we were involved in the development for about 113 new homes in um down in hampshire it was um uh, at the old IBM headquarters. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Down in Farnborough. Wow. Uh, uh Borough Council. We had officer support for them, uh, for this development. Uh, and we did a consultation in front of the, the local, um, uh, in front of the locals. We, we went to one of the planning committee rooms. We set up the panels. We went through all this with, uh, with people on the ground. And as I said, we had people coming in who were generally supportive. Um, and they were genuinely very interested in, in seeing what we were doing. Uh, and we wanted to engage with them in, in an open and honest way. But as I said, people go back home afterwards and they have, they sometimes have other ideas. Yeah. Um, and actually we had, um, quite a difficult, quite a rough planning committee meeting in which 
they had one of the local ward councillors rock up and make a speech against the application mm. um, and effectively lied. I won't put it, I mean, I can't put it strong enough. He actually lied about the proposals and what our proposals entailed to the planning committee, which is really irritating because you want to be able to stand up and correct yeah. the ward councillor. Yeah. Um, but procedure doesn't allow you to do so. You get chucked out of the room if you if you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So you know sometimes you you're then left having to deal with it all on appeal. Mm, absolutely. Mm. You, you and I were involved in an application. It must be seven eight years ago, maybe six seven years ago. Uh, Kelvin House. I don't know if you recall that one. Um, oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a committee, and there was a there was a couple of names. I spoke to the committee. I think for you, didn't I? Yes, you did. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm pleased to say we got the approval. Through. Oh, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Which was great. <laughs> but we, we had a, there was a couple of um, objectors there, and that's right. Correct me if I'm wrong. They get two to three minutes to to. Yeah, do, about three minutes. Yeah, about three minutes. Yeah, um, committee member. Um, ward councillors usually go about five minutes, and they usually go last. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, what what I what I experienced during that uh, committee session. Was the um, you know the parties maybe they were neighbours you know um, you know they they directly accused the, uh, the local authority of whatever they accused them of and got them on you know put them really in a place that um, was not to the benefit of what they were trying to achieve. Never slag never slag off your committee chairman. No, and they did literally within of the three minutes within one minute. I think they got every single committee member's backup. Which is <laughs> <laughs> you know that's, that's happened. That happened to me on something a couple of years ago. It was, um, it was a site in North London, and Wildstone, and it was a redevelopment for twenty units, and it went to committee. And it was a shame. I was, I was I was getting really nervous actually because one there was one or two. I think was two, there was two conservative members who had to make excuses at late minute uh, at the last minute. They wouldn't. They they weren't able to attend. Um, and that kind of really put us on a knife edge because the Labour members would always vote. This is in Barnet. They would always vote against a lot of these developments. And the Conservative members would always vote for them. So I made my speech, and then I think the um, uh, the objector came afterwards. And the objector was really, really hostile about us and started making a few comments about the character of the area and the... Um, the local ward, or when the local, it was right on a neighbouring local ward boundary, and the neighbouring ward councillor knew the area very well as well, and he corrected that the, this particular councillor corrected the objector and said, "I'm afraid that's not correct. My understanding of the character of the area is such and such." And the objector got into an argument with with a councillor and said. No, no, no. I, I know this. I know this area better than you do. And he's saying that to um, a committee councillor. Mm-hmm. The committee councillor happened to be the chairman of the planning committee as well. Came down to a vote. We had three Labour members vote against the scheme. Three Conservative members vote for the scheme. 
it came down to chairman's casting vote. And he voted in favour of the scheme. Fantastic. It just shows you. And I, I, I really wanted to shake the objector's hands afterwards because he did all our work for us. He's basically corralled the committee chairman towards us. And sometimes you get just get a bit lucky like that sometimes. Yeah. yeah, One, one, one tip is um, that. When you'll do it, when you'll know you're going to go to committee, the committee members will often do a site visit beforehand. Try to attend that site visit. Try to do something that's helpful to them because you can't really engage with them. Yeah. You've got to find some sneaky way of engaging with them in whatever you can. Yep. So whether or not it's setting out the site so they can see what the footprint is, yep. or you produce one or two visual handouts of what the scheme will look like, the size of the scheme, et cetera, which you you rock up at the site meeting and you hand these visual aids to them. They won't talk to you, but it'll be noted that you're just trying to be helpful. Now, you they will probably try and have a, a, a light conversation amongst themselves, and we couldn't really hear what was going on. But you will usually get the lowdown from the planning officer who conducted the meeting on site, you call them up afterwards, they give you the insight. And actually what happened was, when I spoke to the councillor, uh, the councillor, uh, sorry, not the councillor, the uh, officer, the officer said, well, the committee members were particularly concerned about the high number of studio units to the scheme. Uh, and actually it turned out that they'd completely misunderstood the proportions of the units okay um so actually they weren't bothered about one beds but they were bothered about too many uh, studios um so um we corrected that and the um presenting officer who i was speaking to over the phone she presented that uh, in, in that evening um she made sure that in her presentation she emphasized the fact that this is the number of studio units this is the number of one beds and that basically that whole wave of bait or basis for objection dissipated it just fell away afterwards and then the, the certainly the committee chairman felt a lot more comfortable about it mm. afterwards so mm. you know when we talk about stakeholder involvement we're not just talking about at the beginning and through the whole process right from the start even before you submit your proposals but all the way through engaging with people in much the same way as if you're doing a deal you're, in, you're not just engaging with the agents and the vendors at the start, and then you feel, right, I've done my bit, and I walk away. You're doing it all the way through. Absolutely. Yeah, it never stops till it stops. It, it? never stops. It's just uh, Absolutely. Safe. Very much so. And it brings me on to another point, actually. There, there's something called building regulations. Um, mm. as, a, as a developer, you know, we have to be very mindful of. But so so getting planning permission is one thing that's a piece of paper you've got yeah got approval for the scheme that you put the application in which is which is excellent now now reading that planning application you you're probably going to have some conditions mm-hmm. and some of those conditions um could be uh, there could be a requirement to discharge those conditions at various stages mm-hmm. uh, recommencement is one so you literally yeah. put a spade in the ground until you've discharge let's say the pre-commencement conditions yeah it might be some post-commencement conditions and then pre-occupation conditions as well mm, mm. 
So it doesn't stop at just getting the bit of paper. You've got to continue to, you know, address the points that have been set out in the planning permission, discharge them all, you know, get the the building regulation design approved with a local authority, implement it, have it checked, building control sign off to ultimately, you know, get all the approvals at the end once you've finished to, to enable you, if you like, to exercise the planning permission that you've you've got in the first instance. So it it really doesn't stop. It's all the way through to to get ultimately to that change of use and and away you go, which is um you know very, very important from a Yeah, building. you've also got to think about if there's a section 106, when are those payments due? Yep. Um and they'll usually be due on implementation or commencement of the development. Absolutely. Uh, so how much can we do before we actually trigger that? Uh, because that could help you to manage your cash flow if you have a strategy around that. Yep. yep. And the other thing is that as soon as you commence, then if it's a SIL chargeable, community infrastructure levy chargeable development, then um, unless you've put in your commencement notice or assumption of liability notice forms for SIL, which are statutory requirements beforehand, then you might have to pay penalties and you also might lose your right for being able to defer your payments for another 60 days. Yep. Uh, so there are so there's there's several things going on here. There's your pre-commencement conditions, when do we commence? Um, what do I have to do to save this permission? Uh, and particularly it's particularly relevant if you're buying uh, land with the benefit of permission uh, and that permission's been sitting there for three years. Yep. Um, Especially if the, if local policy has now changed, um, and you don't want to be in a position where you have to go back all over again, and you know the sill costs may have gone up, section one hundred six may have gone up, the council may have had a complete sea change on the principle of development in the first place, and said, "No, I'm afraid we're not going to allow that now." Um, so, what has been done, and if it has not, if they haven't commenced development yet. What do I have to do in order to save this permission if I've perhaps only got a few days to do so and before the permission expires? Interesting. Very interesting. Sure. So just one question for me, um, and it's it's a point of SIL, Community Infrastructure Levy. I've got mm. a district council brain tree near to where I live, and they don't adopt the policy Um at the moment, if they if they choose to do that in the future, that's obviously you know who, who knows that that they may... don't have a sale regime. They no, don't have an okay, yeah. No. So, so let let's say you've you know we've got planning permission today. Yeah. Uh, current guys, does does all the um, do, do we lock in that in a time capsule everything that's happening at that moment, or, or does that application get impacted by maybe change of policy, maybe around sale? That's locked in. It's locked in. It's, lo- it's locked in. So once you've got that permission, uh, let's say, for instance, SIL comes in later, then it doesn't have retrospective effect. Good. Yeah. Good. Great stuff. Okay. Fantastic. All right. Well, that's that's good. So we, we've covered quite a bit here. I think I think the obvious one is, you know, have you come across clients in the past that have um, just assumed that planning permission is guaranteed? <laughs> Everyone does. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> what do they call it? Some of them there, actually. I mean, quite a lot of them. Are quite, quite a lot of them have got their heads screwed on, yeah. and they they know it's not a done deal. 
Um, I think it's probably more in hope than expectation a lot of the time. Um, <laughs> excuse my glibness. <laughs> I'm a bit battle hardened sometimes. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, yeah, everyone's a bit like that. And I think when you're emotionally involved in in a project, um, it's more you're trying to will it over the line more than anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, but it's it, that's part of the deal. Uh, you know, as being a consultant, you're having to manage people's expectations around what's going on, and it's it's fluid. You know, it's it's always changing, mm. um, and um, you know, no plan survives contact with the enemy. Mm. Uh, first contact with the enemy so you know you can have all the great strategies um, and great ideas in the world but you know you've also got to have that continual engagement within the team about how the, the project is going if we don't get this and we do get that then how does that impact upon the numbers and those numbers are probably changing all the time because the economy changes interest rates change building costs change. Um, so uh, any good client will be reviewing their numbers continually anyway, even if there was no change in the planning. But then the planning adds in another variable as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you you can have a situation where you think you're over the line and then it goes to team leader. Team leader says, um, no, I'm not in support of that. Um and things then turn on on their heads as well. Mm-hmm. And there might be situations where you can challenge that, you can push back on that. Uh, but um, yeah, it's yeah, it's it, it, it can be a very unpredictable business because you're dealing with people and you're dealing with people's interpretation of policy. Yeah, yeah, all people's interpretation of law. Even if you're dealing with permitted development or prior approval, there are grey areas in that as well. Absolutely. If you don't tick a box, yeah. it gets rejected, doesn't it? It's as simple as that, really. Mm. Yeah. So it's you know this is probably coming more from a, a developer and a risk perspective, but you know, time permission is not guaranteed. Um, mm. However, you've done your numbers. If you've done the numbers on the basis of something, um, I anticipate in getting that planning permission. You know, how many units have you anticipated? Is it X or is it Y? Yeah don't actually know whether you're going to achieve X or Y. Um, but what we do know is that there's going to be an offer price going in at, at, at a number. So it's just making sure that you've got kind of protection within your offer. Mm-hmm. As you, as much as you you can. And, you know, there's, there's no right or wrong here. This is just about protection and everybody's circumstances are different. You know, if there's a speculative opportunity, maybe you will take the proverbial risk and go in and see if you can secure what you can secure. Yeah. yeah. But if everything's on the line, just be really careful, I think, and maybe consider conditionality in the in the offer letter. And then that becomes a, a problematic point because because not all vendors will accept conditionality. But it's really it's really difficult, isn't it? Because you know, it, it's okay for those people who have. Um, had years of successful developments behind them. They built up a war chest and they can afford to sit there and wait for the next best, next good deal to come along for those people who perhaps, um, I mean, some may have given up a a job. Some have have got a job, but they're keen to get out of it and go full time into development. Um, and you're sitting there through quite tough times. It's a really tough time to do 
a good deal to find good deals um, because um, agents are pushing for high prices. Um, vendors are building in hope value in residential. Building costs are, uh, are going up and up and up and you know, seem to be coming down slowly. And then you've got the costs in raising finance as well. And you'll be sitting there thinking, just itching to do a deal. I hear all these people on social media, I see all these people on social media doing deals and saying that they bought this site and they got this site under offer and they're about to complete on that. Um, and it puts us all under a lot of pressure, yeah. doesn't it? You know, we become restless and we might then be prepared to take a risk um, that really stretches us um, and also puts a lot of pressure on getting the best planning permission through that we possibly can, optimizing the planning just to make a decent return. When, if we can, we should be trying to buy smart and, you know, negotiate, pull the price down if we possibly can. But it's, it's very difficult. It's easier it's said than done. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where volume is really important when you're looking at deals too. To have, and I, I say to a lot of our academy members, you know, it's got it, it's volume. You've got to get those the volume across because if I, I see it so many times, and I think we've all been, you know, we've yeah. used of this that you get almost emotionally connected. You spent so much time on this deal, and you're so close, and it feels almost you could touch it, but somehow you just got to get it over the line, and that's where the mistakes are made. And yeah, yeah, people get into trouble, and it's you know, it, no, nobody wants that. Nobody wants yeah. that. And uh, yeah. I think I think there's a, a slight softening in the market from a, ben, a vendor's perspective, but but it is tough. You know, when you've got softening GDVs, you've got escalating costs, um, and you've got a vendor that's kind of digging his heels in. It's it's a it's a tough one to. Um, well, the magic's in the follow up, as we said before on a previous podcast, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and if you could be a bit more patient for another six months, but you've got enough in the pipeline waiting to be followed up, so, then you're just pushing your pipeline back six months if you haven't already started. Yep. But you will have a pipeline. Um, but you'll have a pipeline at a better time in the market at a better price rather than now. So Absolutely. You know, it's the, uh, it's the uh, old friend of delayed gratification, isn't it? Absolutely. Back, isn't and, it? Yeah, and it's only ever over when the fat lady sings, as they say. And yeah, you know, the fact you've been maybe pushed back on a an offer that's gone in doesn't mean the other party's going to get to the finish line. So yeah, yeah, exactly. To keep that comms going and hopefully uh, you know pick it up on the bounce. Exactly. Yeah, quite. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, there, there's some of the UK you know planning pitfalls and you know things to watch out for. But I, I think, you know, underlying for me, you know, my, my view of this side of things is always, you know, it's always advisable to seek professional advice, you know, when you're embarking on any planning permission or development project, just so you've got that many, many years of experience and things that have gone well and things that haven't gone well and, you know, pull it, pull it all together. Mm. You know, we're, we're stronger together. Um, singularly, we know what we know, but if you get other people around you, it just it gives you more certainty, I think, going forward. Um, don't forget those regulations and the policies as well, because that's real. Yeah. And, real. We all, and we all play a part within the team in our own way yep. of bringing together different perspectives um, 
because what may work in planning terms may not necessarily work in terms of the structure or the M&E or from a design side, um, or may not sit comfortably with the finance risk or the uh, the building risk. And we had this with um, with the site in Crawley, um, where you were building another floor on top of uh, of the existing office building. And in planning, it made sense that once you got the permission through, subject to a £50,000 financial contribution towards affordable housing, you'd go back in with the new prior approval laws that had come in and you'd apply for exactly the same thing and save yourself £50,000. But you had to crack on and you couldn't wait because it didn't make sense from a financial point of view. You were subject to certain financial contracts where you had to commence the development by a certain time, otherwise you'd lose your funding line. So, you know, it's 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 all also about that dialogue, that teamwork coming together between the different constituent parts of the team. We don't all uh, we don't have the the right answers on our own. We only see one perspective of it as planners. You'll see only one perspective of it as clients and then the architects and the engineers as well. So we bring that together in these teams to work out what the optimum next best steps are. Absolutely. Very much so. And the underlying point is seek planning advice. You know, that's for me, that's the underlying message. And David, I think you may have a a very, very great offer that you could offer our listeners as well. So maybe you could just fill them in on a bit of that, if that's okay. For this year, we're um, happy to offer listeners uh, an opportunity to engage with us on the basis of a sort of a one hour free consultation um, with me directly with me. And uh, the best thing to do is perhaps when you've got a site, uh, rather than waste that hour on sort of just a general chit chat, when you've got a site in front of you, then contact me and then we can arrange a Zoom call and we can go through it for up to an hour. And um, obviously I'll record the Zoom. We've done a few of those, we've done a few of these already uh, and they've been very, very uh, popular and gratefully received as well. So um yeah, it's a one-hour free Zoom. It's available over the course of this year uh, with me. And, um, yeah, take it up, please. Fantastic. Yeah, and urge everybody to take up that very generous offer that you've uh, you've put down there. That's absolutely fantastic. Thank yeah, you. the best way to contact me is um, by email, and that's uh, david at drkplanning.co.uk. That's david at drkplanning.co.uk. Um, we've also got a website. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, it's, it's come to that point. A uh, bit of a sad moment, I have to say, that this is, uh, we've now reached the, the end of the final episode of the, the planning podcast. I think, David, just on behalf of uh, you and I, I think um, we hope everybody has enjoyed listening to us discussing all things planning <laughs> over this, uh, this five part series. And, you know, we've certainly really enjoyed it. I mean, you know, some of the episodes, it's been it's been interesting how um, it was always a challenge. How how can we how can we create a journey through this particular subject matter mm-hmm. that you know fills in the time? And to be honest, it's been fairly easy, hasn't it? <laughs> you know, it's, so it's, much to talk about, isn't it? I mean, it's just really just scraping the surface. Absolutely. Um, but at the same time, we don't want to overwhelm people with with yeah. too much. But uh, um, you know, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, very, very much so. And uh, thank you for all the listeners who have 
joined us during this uh, this series. It's been great. So you've been listening to the planning podcast with David Kane of DRK Planning and Nigel Green from Ecker Academy. Thank you very much. Keep safe and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this episode. And if you would like more inspiration, why not join our Facebook group, Property Developers and Investors, or visit our website, www.equaacademy.co.uk. 